Before we jump into the sermon, I'd like to invite you to watch a video that explains the genre we're looking at this morning. That's right. I have the joy and pleasure of talking to you about the book of Revelation. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood, mountains crumble, mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example, take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. Oh, right. He's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope, or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea, trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. What is going on? Yeah, apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism. How can I know what these symbols mean? Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible, like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos. Ah, and the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe, ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image. Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one 
really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right, it's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah, now that reminds me, when I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment, and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter one, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis one, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation, the death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world. It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is. And there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear. To give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. So that every generation can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. Friends, I hope and pray that's what happens for us today as we look into the book of Revelation. Throughout this series, we've been um, providing a frame, framework and contextualization and examples from all the different styles of literature that are in the Bible, each genre. So today is a perfect example, the text we're gonna look at, it's a great example of the prophetic, apocalyptic literature. It reflects the genre specifically in this way. It provides hope and new perspective, actually a divine perspective on our earthly circumstances. This is God's gift to us, this word in Revelation. And like the rest of scripture, through God's word, we get to discover who God is, God's character, and how God desires to interact with us, God's beloved children. The revelation to John is simply a reminder to us that we do not know about tomorrow, but we do, my friends, know about forever. And our faith, faith is believing what we know to be true, but we cannot see clearly with our earthly eyes. In his book, Revelation for Everyone, New Testament um, author and speaker and, well, genius, N.T. Wright says this. He says, in this book, John, the author who sometimes is called John the seer or John the divine, he's writing in a way designed to correspond and make available the visions that John sees so that holy and prayerful people who read it 
Those who are wrestling with the question of their divine purpose in this really messy and often chaotic world, that they might see God clearly. There are stages and steps in this book. It is an extended letter to the churches that John is writing. The book is prophecy, revelations from God for God's purposes alone. But here's what I think is most significant. Everything in this flows from and points to Jesus our Lord. So today we're going to discover and find some words of hope based on God's revelation to John. Are you ready to jump in? All right, if you're able, whether you are worshiping online or in the room with us, I'd like to invite you to stand as we say together God's word. We're going to read God's word from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Please read with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. Now, a friend of mine who loves Waze pointed out that though she has a map in her car that takes her step-by-step everywhere, she doesn't have it for her life, and sometimes she wishes she does. Sound familiar? I think that that is often how we feel in our faith lives. I don't know about you, but as Allison even mentioned this morning, I don't have to know the next step. I have to know that God is with me. And in this book, in this text, God is encouraging the church through the words of John. I will make all things new. Notice the imagery of the sea that no longer exists, the chaos from the sea in Genesis, and now the chaos is gone. All manner of things will be renewed, a new heaven and a new earth. You and I, friends, those of us who follow Jesus, we are on a journey toward Christ, and we are parapedemus. We are pilgrims people on the way, on the way to eternity. Now, we have some pilgrims. We have some Camino pilgrims in our midst. Lauren Ng, Lisa and Bob Hess, CG. And when you're on the Camino, you have a sense of direction. There are these yellow arrows that point the way, but they're not step-by-step instructions. Sometimes you're following other pilgrims who are ahead of you, sometimes arrows. You don't know the next step, but you do have an understanding of the destination. Sometimes you can't see the path at all. So my question for you is, when you can't see the path in your life, what do you do when you can't see anything? Well, for me, this is actually literally what happens to me every day. You see, what you may or may not know about me is that I am legally blind without my contacts in. So 2020 means something that's 20 feet away appears 20 feet away. I have 20 1500 vision. 
So what's 20 feet away appears as though it's 1,500 feet away. So this is actually a picture of my friend Bubs. And without my contacts in, if Bubs is 20 feet from me, that's what he looks like. This is what Bubs really looks like in real life. Needless to say, there are many times in my life when I cannot see if I do not have my contacts in or my glasses on. The reason I know Bubs is um, he was one of the guides on a rafting trip I went on about a month ago with a whole bunch of friends. We were in kayaks in class two, three, and four rapids. If you're a real rafter, that's not that big. For this girl, that was really big. You can see me fighting to keep my kayak upright, which I did almost the whole trip. We also had an opportunity to ride in some bigger rafts a couple of times, and that was fun as long as everything was going well. And everything did go well until the moment that it didn't. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The only person standing is the rafting guide. He's young, he's new, he was very afraid for his job after this event. But you can see that all seven of us were ejected from the raft. That's not bad. Right? We're all wearing life vests. They taught us how to float, what to do, that they'd come and pick us up. Look at this next shot. Where am I? Oh, yeah. Look at me. I'm turning away from the raft. I'm turning away from safety. Do you know why? Because the contacts have floated out, and I could not see. What do we do when we cannot see? I had no idea the raft was literally right behind me. It was a class four rapid. The water whisked me around the great big rocks that you see in the right of the frame. I could not find a hand grip to hold, and so I was getting bashed into the rocks. Come on, that'll preach. That'll preach when you bash into the rocks of life. Come on, people, you know your scriptures. So I'm around the other side of the, that big stack of rocks over there, trying to hold on, and I hear, Courtney! It's Bubs. <laughs> but I couldn't see him. So I didn't know where he was. And I was facing the rock. You just have to envision this clinging for life to the rock, right? He said, let go. I said, Bubs, I can't see you. He said, I know, but Courtney, you can hear me. I said, okay. So I let go. Floated over. Could hear he was on my left. I'm a fairly strong swimmer. Swimming towards him, swimming towards him. He said, I dropped a rope. I said, I'm sure you did, but I still can't see it. He said, reach your right hand straight up. And I did. And there was the rope. Turns out it was bright yellow, still couldn't see it. Now I'm trapped between the raft and the rocks that Bubs is tied up next to. And I said, okay, I'm still hanging on. He said, I'll get you, I'll get you, trust me. And I said, oh, I trust you, Bubs. He reached down with one hand. I'm not a petite person. I'm a medium person at best. He reached down and with one hand, this guy's like a middle school math teacher, I love him. He reached down. He grabbed the back of my vest and he hefted me all the way up onto my knees onto the raft. And I'm like, whoa! He said, I told you I'd get you. And I said, and I trust you. He said, you're really okay? And I said, yeah, this is gonna be a great sermon illustration. <laughs> what do you do when you cannot see? We feel directionless, like me. The raft was right behind me, but because I couldn't see, I didn't actually turn the right way, so I had to listen instead. Friends, I'm wondering this morning, are you listening? Tell the Holy Spirit in your life. Are you listening to the wisdom of others who've gone ahead of you rafting the rough waters and they point you to God? There is no map for tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, but we can see the final destination of eternity. You know what, we else, what else we get to do? We get to listen. Early in the book of Revelation, John says, to him who has an ear to hear, listen, listen. When God pulls back the curtain and shows you a divine perspective even for a moment, 
I hope you will pay attention. There's great imagery for us in verse 2 of the passage we read earlier. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about bridal image. And guys, you don't get to check out here. That's not a thing. It's not about being a female. It's about being the one Christ has chosen to spend eternity with. So stick with me, please. We also see, as the video said, imagery in scripture shows up again and again and again. Anybody think of where's Jesus' first miracle? Pardon me? At a wedding, that's right, at a wedding, turns wine to water. There's imagery over and over and over again about what it means to be the chosen one, the bride of Christ. So in first century, what's happening? What does a bride actually have to do and why this imagery? Well, the intersection is this. Most importantly, a bride has to wait. And she, she waits without knowledge. The way it works is the families make the arrangement, then the bride goes home to her family of origin, the groom stays at his home, and on an evening, she doesn't know which evening, she doesn't know how long she's going to have to wait, she doesn't know what the new house looks like, she doesn't know what the mother-in-law is going to be like, I mean, come on. She doesn't know these things, so she has to wait in faith that there's something good over here. And then what happens is the groom and his party, they come to get her in the dark of night. That sounds a little spooky, it's not. They come to get her, and she also has to be prepared. Her lamps have to have oil in them. She has to be ready to go with him to this new house and to this new life. See, she's called as we are to live in an old place while preparing for the unknown new. That's us, citizens of heaven waiting here on earth. The other thing she does, she gets ready. She scrubs and scrubs and scrubs like between every toe. And then she puts on new garments. We do that for weddings today. We get dressed up. Listen to these words from Colossians 3, 12 through 14 about what it means to be dressed like Christ. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, get dressed in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If you have any grievance against someone, forgive. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things, over all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. As we wait and watch and listen, my friends, we also need to get dressed. Here's the truth. What changes life today is the life that's coming tomorrow and for eternity. That is is how we live with faith today. We are part of the story that's reflected in Revelation because it's a story of reconciliation, of Jesus offering us his own righteousness. His virtue and character are given to us. We put them on. Martin Luther called it alien righteousness. It's not of ourselves. It's nothing we can do or conjure up on our own. It's extranos from the Latin, from outside of us, from Jesus Christ. Listen, if you did not hear Ben Zulsdorf preach on God's righteousness last week, please go to the website, please go to the sermons and watch. He did an amazing job of interpreting a very difficult concept. We get to live into and learn daily what it means to take on Christ's righteousness as our own. 
This dressing language also says this, we're gonna take off the old and put on the new. It's part of what the baptisms are about. It's the idea that we go in dirty and come out clean, bathed in Christ's love and Christ's blood. Again, from N.T. Wright, if the gospel isn't transforming you, how can you trust it will transform something else like any of the brokenness in this world? Your life, your struggles. How about hate or anger or inequity or injustice? Anybody else with me? I believe that the gospel, the good news of Christ can transform me and transform those things in our world today. God says this, a new state of affairs has been brought into existence when we look at eternity. A door's been opened that nobody, nobody can shut because Jesus Christ, the lamb, is on the throne. We will all fall at Jesus' feet. That's the good news of the book of Revelation. So I wanna know, have you allowed God to give you a new wardrobe? Have you put on the new, traded your rags, as it were, for the beautiful robe of Christ. What changes life today is the life that's coming tomorrow in eternity. The bride needs endurance. You and I need endurance. Like a child waiting for Christmas morning or a fiance waiting for a meeting. One of my favorite authors, Lou Smeads, in his book, Keeping Hope Alive, says this. The most important thing we can ever hope for from God is God himself, my friends. Hope that he will be with us in our troubles. Not necessarily to take them away, but always to be there. Now listen to this. Under us to hold us up, ahead of us to lead the way, behind us to push us along, and over us to keep an eye on us, finally in us to keep alive our hopes of getting beyond our troubles as we await this new heaven and new earth. Newness itself will be renewed. So instead of a mere transition, everything will be renewed by God in perfection. God is coming to live forever in our midst. A healing, comforting, celebrating presence. Christ announced that truth repeatedly as he walked the earth. Look at this passage from John. This is the message version. Don't let this, he means this life, don't let this rattle you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. Jesus says, trust me. There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live. Hey, friends, that's what I want. I want to live where Jesus lives. And you already know the road I'm taking. We already know, my friends, from God's word, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we know who God is. We hear God's invitation. God's voice in the word, God's voice in our everyday lives matters. We're in a new family. You know, one of the joys of um, doing pastoral ministry is that I get to officiate weddings fairly often. And in each each wedding has its own unique story. Each bride and groom come with their own set of worries. They're very, very long spreadsheets now. And I will tell you, it's true that at the wedding, anything can happen. Like, anything can happen. I could tell you some stories. I'll only tell you a couple. 
But one of the things that I learned early on is to assure the bride and groom, by the end of the day, no matter what, you'll be married. They're like, well, okay, okay. Because they're thinking, it's going to be fine. Sure, it's going to be fine. I had a bride and groom go to take communion at the wedding. They turned around to the station, and their wedding planner had not set up communion. I'm like, oh, well, all right. So we prayed. Okay, that'll be okay, because guess what? They were married (laughs) by the end of the day. (laughs) I had a bride and groom at an outdoor ceremony. It was a little windy. Little windy, long veil. Anybody remember the unity candles of the early 2000s? No, no, she didn't. No, there was no fire. Because I said to the bride, I'm going to have to call an audible, because I think you're going to catch fire if we do the unity candle. And she looked at me, and I said, and you'll be married by the end of the day. We know the end of this story. And a really, really nervous groom. I had no idea how nervous he was until he and I were processing down the aisle. It's like 350 people, 350 guests. We got about halfway down the aisle, and he stopped walking. <laughs> and I turned, I looked at him like my calmest grin. I'm like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> and he said, this just got really real, Courtney. He's looking around at the people, and I'm like, eyes to me. Just, just look at me. No, I mean, I, 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 I mean, are we, are we really going to do this? It's, it, it's really real. And I said, oh, do you know the great news? He said, no, I, I don't. What's the great news? And I said, I want you to think about your bride. I want you to think about Evie and the amazing woman she is and how we've sat in my office and you guys have told me stories about, stories about loving one another well and how she makes you laugh and how you're tender to her when she cries. This eyes got a little smaller, and he started to calm down, and I said, should we keep walking now? And he goes, okay. Yeah, they were married by the end of the day also, although someone did ask me after the wedding, do you always stop like that? That was good. That was very dramatic. I'm like, <laughs> no, not, never my plan, never my plan. I was performing a wedding in Seattle in September. Maybe it's going to rain. It's Seattle, it only rains 17 days a month, 12 months a year. And I had said to the bride, you'll be married by the end of the day. So she was fine when we moved the wedding from outside to under the outdoor tent. And then she was inside when I said to the wedding planner, we got to pivot, we got to move the wedding inside. I came in and she was enjoying a glass of champagne. I said, someone get her another glass. And she said to me a few weeks ago when they welcomed their second baby who has some significant health issues, I'm so glad you were with me that day and you reminded me I was going to be married by the end of the day because that marriage is what's holding me up right now. My community of faith that my husband and I are walking with, they're holding us up as we're welcoming this very seriously ill child. You'll be married by the end of the day. You see, we know the end of the story, no matter the trials through the ceremony. Things do not go as planned. We do not have ways step-by-step instructions. We do have a guide in God's word. Friends, we cannot hook our hope on something in the immediate. We must hook our hope on eternity. We have learned that this last year, haven't we? Can I get an amen? Yeah. So what helps us to hook our hope on eternity? The stories of hope of our brothers and sisters in Christ, watching people be baptized and give their lives to Jesus. 
One story that's been helpful to me is the story of James Stockdale. I read about him first in the book, Good to Great. And, and clearly, um, his pause in life as a prisoner of war is more significant than any trials I have faced. But what's now called the Stockdale Paradox has been helpful for me. Maybe it will be helpful for you. He had served eight years in the US Navy when this admiral became a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. When someone asked him what happened with his fellow prisoners, who struggled the most, here's what he said, and I'm quoting. Stockdale said, the optimists, oh, they're the ones who said, we're gonna be out by Christmas, and then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're gonna be out by Easter, and then Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then, you know what? It would be Christmas all over again. Some of those people died slowly of broken hearts. At least pieces of them perished, he said. You see, what we now call the Stockdale Paradox is the ability to hold two opposing but equally true things at once. We hold our faith. We hold the hardship of the world. You and I, we get to hold this truth that God will prevail and all shall be well in the end. We get to practice faithing. I know it's not a verb, but perhaps it should be. We get to practice faithing, believing that God is already present in our ultimate future and with us in the day today. Pastor George Hinman, a friend of mine, says, every day has troubles of its own. That's what the Bible says, and that's true. But he says, I think worry is this, an unhelpful preoccupation with the immediate future. Worry is an unhelpful preoccupation with the immediate future. Another pastor friend of mine, JJ, who works with families who have children going through cancer treatment. Families in dark, hard seasons of life. He said this, you know what, Courtney? Worry is a total waste of imagination. He's right. We get to imagine an entirely different future for eternity during the hardships of today. So let's not, my friends, let's not waste our imagination on worry. Let's not do that. We can turn resolutely our face to anything that is hard before us because we know that because Jesus prevails, we will prevail. There will be illness and death, and Jesus prevails, so we will prevail. There are long hoped for events that will be canceled due to a pandemic, and Jesus prevails, therefore, we will prevail. We have today, and Jesus is right here with us in it. Let's put on new clothes, my friends. Let's be prepared for the banquet with the King of kings and Lord of lords, because on that day, every pain will be wiped away. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be loud celebrating and really good food, and I think a lot of wine also. When every sorrow disappears, in that moment and forevermore, all will be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. We're going to celebrate that in just a couple of minutes here at MCC. You know, we got to hear from Allison and Nick earlier about the ways Jesus pursued their hearts and invited them into relationship. Author Will Williman says this, and I love it. The recipient of baptism is just that, a recipient. You can't very well do your own baptism now, can you? It's done for you. This, my friends, is an adoption, not an interview. We are God's beloved, and because we belong to God, we belong to each other. 
in a fresh way today, Allison and Nick will belong to and with us. And not in a temporary stance. This is a covenant. Like a wedding, it's forever. They forever are God's daughter and God's son. So take just a moment right now. Close your eyes if you need to. Just remember, remember, if you can, your own baptism. What was it like? How well did you know Jesus? What were you wearing? I hope that now, after a journey toward Christ, you're wearing more compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and the righteousness of Christ himself. Friends, we get to put on Christ, get dressed as a bride, waiting for the groom. Writer Tim Stafford reminds us of this, that baptism opens a door for a lifelong love affair with Jesus. It's a beginning lived and relived, a story told and retold, just like a bride and groom who offer to show you their wedding pictures over and over and over again because they are delighting in their story. They're rejoicing in this new covenant. We are God's bride. Today and every day we get to say, God, I give you myself for the best of my life and the rest of my life. It's true. God is under us to hold us up, ahead of us to lead the way, behind us to push us along, over us to keep an eye on us, and in us to keep our hopes alive. Even August 22nd, 2021. I'd like to invite the band out. As they come out, I want you to remember that you get to today, you get to hook your hope on eternity. Would you pray with me? All shall be well, God. All shall be well and all manner of things shall be well because you have called your servants to venture to places we cannot see, to an ending we actually trust, by paths yet untrodden and through perils yet unknown. So God, who is, who was, and whoevermore will be, you have the victory. And as your bride, we wait with joy. We get dressed ready for the eternal celebration reflected in what we're going to do today in baptizing Allison and Nick. Like them, we are forgiven, we are free, we are adopted and accepted. Because of Jesus, we belong to you. We are baptized in the water, cleansed in your blood, held in your hand, and turned toward eternity with you as you reign. Amen and amen. Friends, let's stand if you're able and shout our celebrations to God.